Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. We'll pause just on those few paragraphs. And as we sit, let's pray. Father, that on Trinity Sunday, your spirit would take these truths of Jesus and draw us closer to you. And in being closer to you, Lord, we want to join in with the dance of the Trinity, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that we would spin out from here into our offices and homes and streets where we rest and play, where we work, where we live, and we'd spin out and radiate the aroma of Christ. So Lord, as we kind of connect in this evening so that you can send us out, we pray for the Spirit's unction. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. You know that phrase is sometimes something can become so familiar, so everyday, uh, that we almost become contemptuous of it. I'm not suggesting that of the death of Jesus, but uh, for Christians, of course, the cross, uh, the ultimate symbol of Christianity, and the cross, basically a form of execution in Roman times, and um, it was the form of execution by which Jesus died. And uh, we understand something of his death and so on. And I, I wonder, because through our hymnody and our songs and through our prayers and uh, the, the epicenter of our Christian consciousness, we become so used to the death of Jesus. It becomes so familiar to us that it's not that we're contemptuous, but I wonder whether we become dumbed down and anaesthetized, whether we lose something of this extraordinary event in the whole of human history the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus is, uh, he is so many things. Jesus is dot, dot, dot. He is everything. And we'll look at some of the ways in which he is the more remarkable as Mark draws it out in these few sentences that we've just had read here. And it's, it's kind of easy to overlook, I guess, Jesus. It's easy to become perhaps over familiar with him because of um, the way in which he's kind of surpassed by a whole load of other leaders. I came across this, um, it was in, reported in the Daily Mail, uh, so just over 10 years ago, when um, President George Bush made a state visit to this country. He came for about 10 days, uh, visited you know, the Queen and um, various you know, Prime Minister and, and uh, dignitaries and so on. And uh, the, the Daily Mail made this description. He was accompanied by four military transport planes packed with equipment, including two huge CH-53 helicopters, two troop-carrying Chinooks, six armor-plated vehicles, and a complete surgical unit manned by a team of doctors. 
The president himself arrived with his entourage on two Boeing 747s. The party included 330 government officials, eight marine guards, two doctors, two nurses, five chefs, and five aides to the first lady. There were six military aides. While in Britain, the Bushes were protected by 250 armed US Secret Service agents, 15 sniffer dog teams, and 5,000 British police officers. Large stocks of the President's blood type were available for transfusions, and four hospitals were on standby throughout his stay. This is a guy who's just a tiny little blip in the kind of timeline of human history, albeit a fairly significant blip for bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, and so on. One presidential aide was asked where the entourage would be landing, and he replied, Heathrow, if it's big enough. <laughs> By contrast, this is how Jesus, who changed the face of history, was described by the prophet Isaiah. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Jesus. So... It's all the more strange that as we come to these events, Mark wants to, in his gospel account, he wants to sort of pinpoint, highlight a whole load of things that are extraordinary. Because if he's just an ordinary Joe, and he's had his trial, he's before Pilate, and like many others before him and a number after, he's just going to be strung up on a criminal's cross. Don't we just read a line or two, and then Jesus died? Just those four words. And then Jesus died. That's it, end of story. But we read here that something remarkable took place. I want to highlight just in the next few minutes the centurion, his loud cry, the darkness we see in verse 33, the curtain torn from top to bottom, and the witness of the women, verse 40. First of all, the centurion. And uh, his remark here in uh, verse 39, the end of verse 39, surely this man was the son of God. Uh, in one of the film versions of the life of Jesus, John Wayne was cast as a centurion at the foot of the cross. And he delivered this line. Uh, it, I don't know whether it was a bit myth that he only had a sort of, you know, this one line, quite a line. Uh, and so he kind of, sort of delivered it a little bit matter of fact and apparently the director sort of said cut cut and said uh, no um, John you kind of tried to give him a sort of flavour of what's going on here this is the son of God this is, this is the moment when he breathes his last this is your moment of realisation it needs it needs a little bit more awe and John Wayne said yeah I got it and so they went back to the place and the director says okay and camera's rolling VT run VT and action and John Wayne as the centurion goes Oh, surely this was the Son of God. <laughs> I think what Mark wants us to see here is not that Jesus is the Son of God. Actually, that's been a thread all the way through the Gospel. At his baptism, the voice from heaven, the dove descending, this is my Son. 
Or do you remember the voice, Pat, uh, a few weeks ago on the Mount of Transfiguration and the voice out of the cloud? This is my son. Listen to him. Or Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's, it's not that Jesus is the son of God. What Mark wants us to see here is that this brutal thug of a Roman soldier has seen it for himself as well. This guy who, according to uh, the histories of the emperors at that time, will have been killing human beings on a crucifix like we swat flies. Just the cheapness of human life. He, he couldn't care less. One after another. Sometimes hordes. People rounded up and crucified in the most horrific way. Jesus is just one of them. And of all the people that he's seen suffer that grisly death, what is it about this guy? that the centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. Mark tells us in verse 39 that when he saw how he died, when he saw how he died, he remarks, this guy is the son of God. And I think Mark wants to convey to his early readers, many of them would have been uh, Romans and uh, sort of Christians coming from a Gentile context. Look. If this guy, if this centurion can see and recognize who Jesus is, what about you? What about others? Mark is laying out here something of the revelation of God. I was struck when, when Tim just shared that picture of the guy scribbling around trying to reason out God. And, and it's not, God has given us brains, he's given us minds, let's use them. But you cannot reason your way alone to God. It requires revelation. It requires you to be open to the fact that God can open your eyes, open your heart, open your mind to see what up until then you had not seen, even though it's right in front of your eyes. This man on a cross, but he's not just any man on a cross. Revelation. John the Baptist had it when he sees lots of people see Jesus as he starts his public ministry, but John the Baptist is the one who says, behold, the Lamb of God. He sees Jesus, but he sees who he really is. And this centurion here, surely this man was the son of God. He sees Jesus dying, and he sees who he is. Remarkable. That a grisly Roman thug like this centurion, we imagine him to be, can be stopped in his tracks in order that he sees. When was your centurion moment? When was it that you, you, you transitioned? It's a significant transfer from, from hearing about Jesus, knowing about Jesus, to actually seeing him, to actually knowing him. It's a bit like, you know, let's take the queen. I know a lot about the queen, but I don't know her. And I guess many of us will know many people who know a lot about God and religion and spirituality. We'll know a lot about Jesus. But do you know him? Have you seen him? When was your centurion moment? Surely this is the Son of God. If, you, if you're not sure whether you've had that centurion moment, if you're not sure that you've encountered the risen Lord Jesus Christ, if we fast forward a bit, 
then don't leave tonight without doing something about it. Come and see Pat or myself or just someone you know and trust within this church. We'd love to just explain how you can meet him. It's a simple, short prayer. And you transfer as God opens your eyes. If you've had a centurion a moment, and it's like mine, my first one, I first realized who Jesus was, I was a teenager, so it was a long time ago. Are you refreshing those moments? Are you putting yourself in the place where you can have fresh revelation? That there's more of Jesus to know. Trinity Sunday, not a bad time. It's just the analogy of getting to know a, a family. You, you, you usually get to know another family through one family member. And they introduce you to brothers and sisters and mums and dads and aunts and uncles. And you, you get to know the wider family. And in getting to know the other members of the family, it enriches what you know about the, the individual. You see them within a relational context. So it is with Trinity. And that as we get to know Jesus, we discover more of the Father. And we experience more of the Spirit, which tells us more about Jesus. Fresh revelation moments. Wow. Jesus, I, I didn't realize that about you. I didn't see that in you. I didn't know that about you. Mark wants us to have those revelation moments just as the centurion did. I say that because, uh, and just as a little aside, I was struck by a sort of article I read on uh, one of these things you get on the you know, social media about the uh, purported collapse of the evangelical wing of the Christian church in America and you know, stats and so on and so saying that the, sort of, the evangelical wing of the church is, is kind of collapsing. And this article was saying, well, I, really? Really, yeah, sure, it's being shaken by uh, just a whole load of kind of social and cultural challenges, if you like, in our age in the Western world. Sure, it's being shaken. But actually, the, in fact, it depicted it in a cartoon. Really, what's happened is you've, you've had uh, those people who've confessed Jesus Christ just surrounded by a whole load of people who are silent. There was a kind of cartoon figure with a bubble saying, I believe in Jesus. And then a whole load of people here. And then just one person over here saying, I don't believe in Jesus. And, and the caption was, a generation ago. And then the next caption was now. And you've got the guy saying, I believe in Jesus. But all the people around him are here. Surrounding the guy who says, I don't believe in Jesus. And the writer of the article, it's for us to look and discern and kind of apply in our... But the writer is saying, is it not that we've just seen a shift in those people for whom Christianity is socially convenient? They've never really professed the name of Jesus Christ. I don't really know, know about him. I go to church, yeah, because that helps to get my kids in high school. Or because, yeah, I know, it would keep mum and dad happy. Or a whole load of reasons why it's just, yeah, I'll kind of bubble along with these guys. It's where the kind of, the sort of moral majority seems to be. So I'll hang around. But, oh, if it gets a little bit tough or testing, if, you know, if I discover that actually the guy I'm following goes and gets crucified, ooh, maybe I'll... And the right said, that, that's all that's happened. We're seeing a social shift, yeah. But a religious shift? That's why it's crucial that if you don't want to be shifted and moved and bobbed around by whatever the latest wind or current is, you've seen Jesus. Surely, this man, this man was the Son of God. The revelation of the centurion. Secondly, the loud cry. This is interesting. And again, we can easily gloss over this. You know, we read the account at Easter and Good Friday and Jesus made a loud cry. I mean, oh. But 
just a little bit of study on, on the terror and the horror of crucifixion reveals that most crucifixions were unbelievably bland and boring and dull and drawn out because most of the victims of crucifixion took days to die. Uh, strung up there, and often they weren't helped actually by those who meant well. They'd often offer, as we read here, this um, sponge vinegar, and they'd offer sort of a dip the sponge dipped in water or vinegar to assuage your thirst because what was happening is you're getting dehydrated in just hours and hours in the, in the midday sun. And most victims died after two or three days of a combination of, of dehydration, exhaustion, and, and ultimately as, asphyxiation because you just ran out of strength to heave yourself up to open your rib cage to allow enough breath into your lungs to keep you alive. So the, the, the horror of the final minutes of your life was you, you basically were um, kind of, you know, you, you were strangled effectively. You couldn't breathe and you died of exhaustion. And you'd long since had any strength or energy to whisper, let alone talk, let alone cry out. What's striking about Jesus' death is how quick it was. And we see that just drop down, verse 44. Pilate, who oversaw his crucifixion, it says here, Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. And so he summoned the centurion and said, Look, are you sure? Has he really died that quick? And it's almost as if Mark is wanting to call our attention. Yeah, this wasn't a normal crucifixion. Jesus cried out. In fact, Mark says twice, uh, verse 34, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. And then we see verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. It's as if Mark is wanting to say, pay attention to the cry on the cross. Because it's the heart cry of the gospel. It is the heart cry at the center of the gospel. Verse 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the thing. Jesus had only ever known the close intimacy of his relationship with Father God. He'd only ever referred to God as Father or the Father or my Father. When he taught his disciples to pray, he said, how should we pray to Jehovah, to Yahweh? And he says, when you pray, say, Father. Wow. We can, we can call God Father. Yeah. That's how human beings are designed to be made, created to be made, that we can call God Father. It's the only relationship he'd known, that close, intimate relationship. This here is the only time in the Gospel accounts when Jesus is recorded as addressing God as anything other than Father. My God. He uses the kind of formal, distant tone of of, of a holy God and him a sinful human being. You see, on the cross... He's wearing our sin. He knows what it is to be separated from God. Here's the thing that through this cry, Mark is wanting us to note. That Jesus completely assumed every aspect of our humanity. Now up until the cross, he'd assumed every bit of our humanity bar one. The experience of the consequence of sin. Up until then, he'd lived a perfect life. And so he'd assumed everything. He'd been born. He knew what it was to be born as a baby. He was an infant. He was a child who played with all the innocence that children do. He was a teenager. 
He spent a whole year being 27. He knew all the highs and the lows of our human experience. He went to parties and wedding feasts and he knew how to celebrate. And he was there at the grave of a good friend, Lazarus. He, he experienced everything that we experienced bar one. What it was to know that separation that sin brings in our relationship with God until here. And on the cross, he bears the weight of the sin of the whole of the world. And he knows what it is to be cut off from God. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? There's a Catholic prayer that the fathers, the divines, uh, where there's one phrase within it that simply assures us of this. That which has not been assumed cannot be redeemed. Assumed as in taken on. That which has not been assumed cannot be redeemed. If Jesus has not experienced what it is to be cut off from God by sin, then how can he redeem us? But he has. And Mark wants us to know that as Jesus hung on that cross, he's been where we have been. He's experienced everything that we experience as a consequence of sin. And through sin, uh, sorry, through the cross and through death, he's demolished the power of sin. It is finished. The price is paid. And God exonerates him and raises him to brand new life. And here's the thing that Jesus lays out to each and every one of us is that as we put our hand in his, as we seek God's forgiveness in Jesus, we can walk through death to brand new life. He rescues us from the consequence of sin. He puts within us brand new life. That is the spirit. The, the first fruits, the foretaste of heaven now. We can know and begin to live that life even now. The revelation of the centurion. The cry at the heart of the gospel. The darkness. Verse 33, at noon, middle of the day, darkness fell. So the, the, the students and professors and... Uh, the intellects, they look at this and they say, well, surely that was just an eclipse. But this is Passover, governed by where the moon is, Passover at full moon. So the moon is in the wrong position for an eclipse. Mark doesn't explain why there was darkness over the land. I just wonder whether it was something of the heart of God, providentially. He's kind of, he, he owns creation, it's his. He can do with it what he likes. His heart is so heavy, so darkened, so eclipsed that the world mirrors that at this cataclysmic hour. What does Mark want to say to us about the darkness? Well, it is that just out of the darkness always dawns a new light, a new hope. Apparently the darkest hour of the night is just before the dawn. And Mark wants to say there is a new hope 
dawning. There's a new light dawning. Will you, in your darkest moments, and each and every one of us will face tough times and bleak times and lonely times and empty times and times when standing up for Jesus will be the toughest thing we'll ever have to do. And in those dark times, those times when maybe you feel so separated from God and from others, will you, will you determine to fix your eyes on the dawn that is coming? What about the curtain? Verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now in Matthew's account of uh, Jesus' crucifixion, he tells about a, uh, talks about an earthquake and these horrendous scenes we've seen recently in the, that violent earthquake in Nepal and you see the utter devastation that an earthquake can do to buildings. And he said, well, you know, uh, maybe that was it. Maybe the, you know, that's what caused the temple curtain to be ripped in two. But it's interesting that Mark is quite particular in the way he describes it. It was torn from top to bottom. And you say, well, details. <laughs> you know, supposing you wanted to set out to tear a curtain in two, how would you do it? You could go from the bottom up, or you could go from the top down. Simples. Except that if you kind of do a little bit of research on the dimensions of the temple, you'll realize that it was about 15 stories high. And the Holy of Holies, which was the place that was separated by this great thick curtain, we're not talking little sort of, you know, Ikea blinds here. This great thick, it was a huge expanse of, of thick material. And it was enormous, it was huge. It was way out of reach to ordinary, unless you, you, know, you had some kind of mechanism for getting up there. Mark has been quite deliberate here in that it was, it was torn from the top to the bottom, out of human reach. It wasn't our initiative that ripped open the curtain that separated the, the outer courts in the temple where the Gentiles and the women and the uh, male Jews, the male people of God could, could, uh, could wander about and be. That separation, uh, sorry, that, that, yeah, the sort of separation that the curtain brought into the Holy of Holies, the holy place, where only once a year the high priest could go. God has initiated the rip. God has torn down the barrier. It's his initiation that invites each and every one of us into his presence. I sometimes wonder whether the extraordinary privilege of being invited by God into his presence is something about which we become overly familiar. I risk the sort of finger-wagging, telling off of a vicar, but what time did you intend to get to this service that starts at five this evening? <laughs> did you allow yourself 10 or 15 minutes just to prepare yourself to come into the presence of God? Or was it a bit of a saunter? I'll get there when I'm ready. The God of the universe who sent his son to die on a cross, who, who bore the separation so that we could enter into his presence and come out of darkness and into a new dawn. The God has initiated this. How dare we become familiar with what he's done and continues to do for us. Access to the presence of God possible for all. 
Have you received God's invitation into his presence? Do you, do you cherish that? Do you own that as precious? Paul, in one of his letters, talks about working out this salvation, this coming into his presence with fear and trembling. It's a precious thing. I used, to, I used to struggle a little bit with that, the fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We're meant to be frightened of God? No. No, we're frightened of losing God. This is so precious, I don't want to lose it. When our kids were younger, we, um, it, we had our own sort of austerity in the vicarage. And uh, so it was what the kids could drink when they were you know, little, little kids. They could drink juicy water. That's what we told them. Juicy water on a, on a because they were their mates, they had these sort of high five and juice and all that kind of thing. We, uh, so we went juicy water during the week, but there was a special treat on a Sunday. They could have a fizzy drink, they could have Coke or lemonade. We were just boundless with our generosity <laughs> as parents. These are little guys. We knew they were going to come into all sorts of stuff later on. So I, I just remember Emma. I, I remember pouring out the lemonade. And they, we used to make quite a plate, kind of a glass. And you pour out the lemonade. You know how you pour it out? And it goes, all the head, like that, right at the top. And their eyes, like that. And then it would disappear down. They loved that bit because it would drop down again. Room for more. <laughs> a little bit more, a little bit more like that. And you, and you top it right up. And we topped it right up. This was their weekly treat. Top it right up the top. Emma, I guess she was about three or four eyes on stalks. This is my lemonade. And this is how she walked back to her place. I poured it out. She walked back to her place like this. <laughs> she dared not drop, spill a drop. This was so precious. This was so precious. Fear and trembling, lest she spill a drop. And Paul says, work out your salvation. Hold on to these privileges, to these gains, to what we have in Christ with fear and trembling, lest we become overly familiar, lest we become contemptuous, lest other siren voices, other idols clamoring for our time and our attention, our commitment and our devotion, they win out. Oh, I'll do this. Oh, I'll go there. Can't really be bothered. Mark describes the death of Jesus with all these clanging things, these waving flags, these gongs, these symbols. Pay attention, he's saying. Listen to the centurion. Look at the, listen to the loud cry. Look at the darkness. See the temple curtain. Understand. Receive. Enjoy. Live out. Finally, the women. The witness of the women, it, it just briefly, I've run out of time, but it, it's just to say that if you were Mark back then and you were looking to create an account of the life of Jesus Christ in a way that would be received in the culture at the time, you wouldn't include women in the account. Women were second-class citizens. A pious Jew at the time declared, Lord, I thank God you've not made me a Gentile or a woman. They were considered to be the possessions of men. And their testimony, crucially, the woman's testimony did not count in a court of law. If you were Mark and you're wanting your gospel to have credibility, if you're kind of making this up, there's no way you'd have women as the last to witness the crucifixion and the first to witness the resurrection. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, 
and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus. They were the first, among the first, women to witness the resurrection. The most cataclysmic event in the whole of human history. Women. There's no way you'd include that in the gospel account unless it was true. And you, don't, you didn't care about the social mores. You didn't care about acceptivity. You didn't care what authorities thought because this is truth. And I'm going to declare it. There were women there. I'm going to turn the world upside down. Jesus is turning the world upside down. doesn't matter what we write or what we say. doesn't matter what social convention is. It, for me, this is one of the most authentic little details of the gospel. This, this is almost one of the reasons why I, go, I know this is true. Because there's no way you'd include women if you wanted it to be accepted. And they're right there. What's that telling phrase right there? Uh, uh, many other women. He's almost rubbing it in. This is true. This is real. I, I, wanna, I kind of finish there. This is Jesus. Any other benchmark for our lives, in any decision that you make, any priorities that you're wrestling with, how should I go? Where should I be? Who should I be with? What, what, just all the decisions that flow across our, our consciousness day by day by day, the benchmark is Jesus. As we've, as we've looked through these last few weeks, Jesus is dot, dot, dot. Don't become too familiar that we fail to see just how crucial, how special, how unique, how anointed, how real and alive Jesus is. Amen.